So it is not because the West doesn't have the capability to be able to do that. I guess the West doesn't simply attach the same value to you know a more prosperous Africa than that the the Chinese do. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Months ago, Liberia's former Minister of Public Works, Jude Moore, argued in a popular tweet that Western critiques of Beijing's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative will ring hollow in the absence of viable and state-led alternatives from the West. He claimed that the West can easily match, if not exceed, China's Belt and Road Initiative if it wanted to. But he also wondered whether the West really wants to do this. And so in the tweet, Mr. Moore was somewhat unconvinced that the West really wanted to do anything about improving Africa's infrastructure because he felt that the West remains satisfied with so-called virtue signaling when it comes to Africa's prosperity. And so he went on to argue that it should not come as a surprise when African governments do their best to avoid being drawn into any rivalry between the big powers such as the US and China, and rather prefer to maintain a broad coalition of partners. But most importantly, he pointed out, and I quote, if China has built more infrastructure in Africa in two decades than the West has in centuries, China is also our friend, end quote. I'm delighted to have Jude Moore on the show today. In addition to previously serving as Liberia's Minister of Public Works, with oversight over the construction and maintenance of public infrastructure, Jude Moore has also been the Deputy Chief of Staff to Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. He is now a Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Judy, welcome to the show. I've become a huge fan of your work. I've read most of the op-ed pieces you've written of late. And there's just so many things uh, to talk about. But I just want us to... um, get started with a broad question. And this relates to your prior experience of being in government in Liberia during the 2014 Ebola outbreak. And thousands of people died and, and you know, many countries in West Africa and their economies are still somewhat, you know, struggling. They haven't really fully recovered from this catastrophic event. So my first question really has to do with what you consider to be the potential lessons from that outbreak that can be useful now on the African continent as many countries try to tackle the COVID pandemic. Dan, so thank you very much for, for, for having me on, on, on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, hopefully we can have a really productive conversation. Yeah, I'm, in fact, when, when, when this thing started, I 
one of my colleagues, and it's incredible because he and I finished high school in a refugee camp during the Liberian Civil War, and he ended up being the guy, the Ebola czar in Liberia. And, and I was in the president's office, so it's two guys who were in high school together. And we did a piece. And one of the things that we talked about was that these kinds of pandemics, uh, um, large infectious disease outbreaks, they, they, end, they start off as a health crisis, but they become a governance crisis because they, they impose constraints and, and stress on the entire governance structure. And, and part of what we said was, if there is some repository of trust between government and people, it is, it is used then, it is depleted then. And, and the reason is because the government is going to require people to change their behavior. And if people, if there's no pre-existing trust between government and people, then it becomes really, really hard. And one of the things we saw, we tried to warn people about and we saw, was the use of security forces to enforce uh, movement restrictions. So we saw people getting beat up. We saw people, you know, getting arrested. And we made the same mistakes in Liberia. And we tried to enforce a quarantine and, and, and a kid got shot. So one of the first things we talked about was, the government's response has to be expanded. It has to be more than simply the government because the government is not the only repository of trust. And in some areas, the government may not be the most credible actor. So for us in Liberia, you know, with Ebola, it is spread through the body fluids of the sick or the dead. And uh, we have a significant minority of Muslims in Liberia and Muslims do ritual preparation of their dead. And because of that, the Ebola kept spreading among them. And, and for this, the Liberian government reached out to the imams because in this situation, the imams carried way more credibility with the faithful than the government did. And so the chief imam of Liberia went on the radio and said, you know, if I died, I don't want my body to be processed. You know, I, I don't want you to do this because this is how this disease is spreading. So I think for most governments across the continent who are responding to this, it's important to understand that this is not going to be simply the government that responds to it. You need your, your civil society, you need the private sector, and it has to be a whole of society effort to be able to defeat something like this. I'm glad you mentioned trust because there hasn't been that much talk about this, you know, uh, in terms of the recent debate. It's all about very technical solutions, about lockdowns. And I know you've argued that perhaps curfews are more effective than lockdowns. And I'll ask you that in a moment. But Going back to the trust issue, the role of information, I know that you've highlighted this also in your previous work, has been crucial because it really has to do with the kind of sources, right, that people trust and, and who you trust. Because I read somewhere you wrote that some people initially in Liberia thought that Ebola was a hoax, that it was, it was con concocted by a government hoping to siphon off international aid. That's right. Uh, and this is something I've seen also in um, in relation to the initial success that Uganda had with, with HIV AIDS, you know, tackling the crisis there. It was all about using different religious figures, imparting messages from the pulpits, sending out drama groups to enact certain scenes, etc. But generally, what, how do you think now in today's Liberia? Is there now more trust or do governments, even in Liberia now, have to rely on all of these other actors rather than the state itself 
to impart these really important messages? That's the first question. And the second has to do with why do you think curfews are better than lockdowns? Okay, so on the on the trust question, I, I think part of the thing, and this is something that you're a political scientist, uh, you study politics on the continent. And one of the issues we have on the continent uh, that's very difficult to deal with, I don't know how you solve it, is this issue of continuity. Normally what happens is when a new political party comes, there's an entire house cleaning. And so in that instance, you have there's very little in terms of institutional memory because you're firing everybody and bringing on your own people. And sometimes it even affects civil servants. And so what happens then is governments are forced to relearn the same lessons, right? So I think uh, when this the new administration came, what benefited the new administration was that there was a significant amount of mus muscle memory in the body politic after the Ebola crisis. So people knew what to do. You know, when you told people they had to wash their hands, Ebola, that's what we did. So people began to act even when the government wasn't. People were taking precautions and people still had these things. We call them Ebola buckets. These were um, pails in, uh, with faucets on them that each family had in front of their house with chlorinated water and soap to wash their hands. So people just brought out what they had used for Ebola and filled it with water and, and began to take those steps. So I think... This, what I call the muscle memory of the body politic, allowed the government to benefit from that so that, you know, other actors who had been active during the last outbreak simply revived themselves and did it. But uh, there, there wasn't a lot. There, I mean, the government tried to use some of the same structures and inherited. But again, um, the personnel was different because the government had brought in its own people. But I think they, they, they eventually caught on and, and the response has been um, as good as it can be in a situation like that. The reason I, I was saying that curfews were better than, than lockdowns was because, you know, unlike uh, in the West, where most of job most of the jobs that exist are formal, across the continent, more than 80% of the labor force works in the informal sector. That means there are no savings. Most people uh, are able to stay alive based on what they make daily. And so initially, when we didn't know as much as we know now about the disease, it made sense for you to be able to, you know, completely lock down. But once it became clear that there were mitigated uh, measures you could take to prevent the spread of the disease, then curfew allowed people who make a living from informal work to be able to do some of that. We're going to reduce the hours that they can do it, but those things will remain in place so that they can continue to live. Because one... The government, in a few instances, didn't have any programs for social grants, right? In the U.S., people got checks from the federal government. In, in Europe, people got paid to stay at home. Very few of that, you know, of those kinds of policy options existed. And so how do you enact um, public health measures, but to enact them cognizant of the context in which you work, in which more than 80% of the people are in the informal sector? And so I felt, you know, reducing the hours and reducing access to public spaces while still doing the same thing made more sense than simply locking down places in which you know people had no savings or had no provisions at home that they could continue to survive on. I think that is a really important point, Jude, because as you write uh, very correctly, informality does not mean that everything is disorganized because there are these market associations, there are all kinds of actors that can 
enforce some sort of order, right? Because uh, that, that is something that we're seeing growing evidence in terms of food insecurity, in terms of daily wage workers, that lockdowns just don't work. And the countries that didn't enforce those lockdowns actually have done perhaps somewhat better. But let's move on to um, the main focus of our talk today, Jude. And I've been interested in infrastructure for a long time. I've been studying China in Africa for a while. And what I do notice when I look at the literature and in my own work, I've found that most governments consistently complain about the poor state of their roads, of their bridges, the lack of buildings, the lack of energy infrastructure. And they also complain that the West has traditionally been very reluctant, at least since the 1960s, they stopped doing these infrastructure projects. And China has filled in that gap. And in one of your recent op-ed pieces following a viral Twitter thread that I remember reading about, you write that China has built more infrastructure in Africa in two decades than the West has in centuries. And you also ask then, where is the European or American equivalent or an alternative to China's Belt and Road? So before we discuss the Western response or the lack of it, I want us to reflect on the Chinese contribution first. So my question is, is this all win-win in your view, the Chinese assistance, the Chinese activities, or are there some areas you believe that warrant closer scrutiny and attention? So thank you, thank you again for, for raising this point. I, I think, you know, so what happened then was the next week I did a thread. It wasn't as viral, but I did one in terms of re-examining the Chinese relationship. I think in a lot of ways, Africa's relationship with China is one of convenience. There is no natural affinity, you know, for the Chinese funding or Chinese infrastructure. Africa doesn't have a myriad of options. So one of the few options that's available is China. And so most Africans latched onto that. So I think it's important to be able to understand that. But I, I, on, on this question, across the continent, you know, Africa lags every other region of the world in terms of infrastructure coverage, especially for paved roads and power. I mean, at one point, I think it was in 2000, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a report from McKinsey that showed that the entire installed capacity of electricity on the continent was equivalent to Spain's. I mean, Spain has like 60 million people. We're talking about a continent of a billion people in the entire, and, and those numbers were deceiving because once you took out South Africa, the numbers dropped precipitously. So it, it's, it's very, very difficult to imagine how one builds a prosperous society, how there's any form of economic growth without a basic infrastructure backbone. And, and I think since the 60s and 70s, the West has moved, at the end of the Cold War, the West moved to a different ethos, and that was one based on rights, like human rights. And so they began to finance more um, of the soft issues, education and health, and move away from hard infrastructure. Um, there were questions of corruption around those issues, questions of white elephant projects around those issues. And so because of that, there was an empty space of a great need, and that is a space that China filled really, really well. 
it wasn't simply that China was filling that space in terms of the infrastructure companies, but China was also coming along with state-backed financing, money from, from Chinese policy banks that will provide loans to African countries to be able to do this. And for many countries, you know, one of the points I always made was that we had a relationship with the West in which African resources were extracted, but the model was you extract the resources and you pay taxes and royalties to the government with the understanding that the government will use the resources to reuse the taxes and royalties to build infrastructure or provide services. What had never happened, a lot of that money ended up in Swiss bank accounts, right? And, and with the Chinese and the Angola model, where China offered loans that were backed by you know, natural resource payments, most African people, ordinary people, for the first time could see a direct connection between the extraction of the natural resource and some tangible results in terms of roads, water filtration plants, infrastructure. And so we have this thing. And in 2000, in the year 2000, China hosts this first forum on China-Africa cooperation, but it coincides with Chinese, with the Chinese government telling Chinese private and state-owned enterprises to go out seeking markets for Chinese products. And so it was the first going out project for China. And Africa at the time, you have to remember in the, in the 2000s, Africa is on fire. The civil wars, the coup d'etats, and for most of the West, Africa is not seen as a place to do business. It's seen through the lenses of international development and aid and humanitarian assistance. And, and as a rising power, Africa was one place China would not face a significant challenge. And so China built over the last two decades that relationship with African governments. And, and so I, I think, one, there, there were very few options to what Africa needed and what China provided. And so China became a, a ready partner. And, and then secondly, you know, at that time, there, the democratic governance wasn't the order of the day on the continent. And because China has this policy of non-interference, a lot of autocratic governments found a ready and a loving partner in China because you didn't have Europeans who, or Americans who I said, like I said before, were on this new ethos of rights, of minority rights, of human rights, of, of democratic governance. And so all public financial management, the Chinese were saying, listen, that's an internal issue. We're not going to get involved with it. We're going to let countries decide for themselves on those issues. And so China was like the perfect partner for autocratic governments, but also just simply the needs that Africa had. So this is how China comes up and becomes this, you know, really. And the final thing I would say also is that China at that point was the world's factory. And what, do, what does factory and what do factories require? They require raw materials. Africa has about 30% of the world's natural mineral endowment. And so it made a really, really good partnership for infrastructure for minerals, infrastructure for resources. And so that relationship with China and Africa really blossomed. highlight several important facts, you know, this whole visible, tangible assistance that people can touch and feel and smell. Can you give us a little sense of how it is to be down there? I mean, you were in government. You know, how did you discuss these issues? Because I read somewhere that when you were deputy chief of staff to 
President Sirleaf, you once took a team to an urban slum to talk about what you were doing, you know, in, in government, and you were highlighting apparently human rights issues and anti-corruption and all of that. And one of the listeners apparently asked you, you know, whether he could cook these things and <laughs> and feed them to his children. Yeah. So he wasn't very impressed. So so can you like tell our listeners a little bit about how it is to negotiate projects, negotiate loans? Is it based on what the country needs? Is it based on this feeling of being equal partners? Or is it a gift that needs to be reciprocated later? Yeah, so I at last year, I was supposed to teach a class at the University of Chicago on the role of infrastructure in foreign policy. And, and I began my class, I was going to begin my class with uh, the gift. So mm -hmm. great, yeah. yeah. And 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 the reason was because you know, gift giving implies reciprocity, right? And so it's that thing that there's no free lunch, and I think most governments in Africa recognize this. I will just give you an example that Liberia of the the Millennium Development Goals. That's what they were called then. Yeah, between 2000 and 2015, the MDGs, we were on course to. Um, to pass only one of them, and that was, you know, reducing maternal mortality. And our ability to do that was largely because of American uh, assistance to our health sector, so that our health sector was the best performing of all the government ministries and agencies, but largely because of money from USAID and the U.S. government. Then the Chinese came and, and offered to build us a, a referral hospital outside of Monrovia because there was one in the capital of Monrovia. So we, we chose a site in the middle of the country so that people from the southeastern part of the country and the northwestern part, the northern part of the country would, would not have to come all the way to Monrovia to be able to get. Uh, so the Chinese built us a $10 million uh, facility. Now, for the average Liberian who's driving past, you see this massive infrastructure where the new hospital where none of that existed before. And it's all got Chinese writing on it. It's a gift from China and everybody knows that it's Chinese. Yet there are lots, there are thousands of mothers who are alive and children who are alive because of money that the US government provided. That is not seen by the ordinary person. It's difficult to explain to the ordinary person how important that is. But for the ordinary Liberian, you see what the Chinese built. And so China has been really, really good at these kind of showpieces of their gifts. So in the end, Chinese gift to Liberian health, Chinese grants to Liberian health system is really small compared to what the U.S. is doing. But for the average Liberian who's looking at the outcomes, he thinks the Chinese have done significantly more. So, and this is what happened to me and my team. You know, so we've done all of this stuff in terms of an open and transparent government. We've done this stuff where people could say whatever they wanted to about the government without fear of being arrested or taken away at night. You know, and we had uh, anti-corruption organizations. People were, you know, uh, there was a gender audit of, of government resources. All of these things, these soft issues and negotiated. And, and the guy was like, listen, I don't have a job. You know, I can't feed my kids. What is all of that stuff to me? And so one has to balance between these core soft issues and the hard, tangible issues. So for us, in terms of negotiating with, with China, so I think because the president of Liberia had worked at the World Bank and was basically really, really in this uh, 
the Washington consensus and that the, the Western fold, we did not go on a, a borrowing spree. As you know, we had uh, we had our debt waived under HIPIC. And uh, so the, the, the president tried to be responsible in terms of how we took on debt. But in the one instance where we where normally the way to work would be a Chinese company will show up, you know, and say, hey, we, we, got, a, we got a chance to look at your development document. There's this road or there's this power plant. Why are you not building it? And we say, well, it's just because we don't have the money. We're like, oh, don't worry about it. We can actually help you negotiate to find the money. So in some instances, in a lot of instances, it is Chinese companies seeking work that approach the government and offer to raise the money to be able to do it. So there's that. And then in some instances, for projects that the government wants to do, you approach the Chinese government. But it, it, the way it works is that you don't approach. So we'll go to the World Bank, we'll ask for money, and then we'll put out a tender, and anyone can bid on that tender. With the Chinese, you need a Chinese company who's going to be doing that work, and then you approach the China uh, Exim Bank, right? So Chinese money is tied to a Chinese company doing the work, whereas you know EU trust fund money or World Bank, African Development Bank money is physical cash, and then companies can bid on it. So, um, in some instances, you know, we, the debt management committee in Liberia just didn't approve many of the proposals that were made. So, and the thing about it is also that, and this is one of the areas that require sort of keen observation on the Chinese side. So, I'm at the Ministry of Public Works. There's a Chinese road construction company talking to me. Then at the Liberia Electricity Corporation, there's a Chinese, you know, electric company talking to them. Then at the Liberia Water and Sewage Corporation, there's a Chinese firm that does water filtration plants that's talking to them. So you have all of these, uh, um, so different Chinese companies, there's no China Inc. There's no a single one Chinese, you know, it's, it's, I think people tend to think of China as this monolithic unit. No, we had companies from Beijing, national, you know, state-owned companies, but we also have provincial companies, you know, so from Hunan or Chongqing, companies from there. But then we have these quasi-private companies, right? They, they're Chinese, but they're, they're so you have these three uh, nodes of Chinese engagement, all of them approaching the government at the same time. And in African governments where you don't have, say, a debt management committee or a central committee that approves all of the funding, uh, funding then you have actors who are signing these MOUs and committing the government. And, and so the debt builds up. We, we, the one project we did with the Chinese in for, for, for debt was the, the airport, redoing the, the terminal at the Roberts International Airport. And it was such as $50 million. But so this is what it looks like in terms of uh, the, um, how an African government gets, you know, and, uh, money from China to be able to do an infrastructure project. It, sometimes it's based off the country's needs. It's sometimes based off a Chinese company seeking work. Those are really fascinating insights, Jude, because you're absolutely right. It is a mistake to think that there's one China. There are so many actors involved. And in my own work, I find that many Chinese companies actually do the homework and then they consult the embassies. They're always looking for, for a new contract and there are all kinds of companies and so it is not just the Chinese government. You can't say that it's the Chinese government behind everything. But two sets of issues here. Uh, one has to do with this criticism that you sometimes see in the Western 
media, but also in some scholarly work, that some of the infrastructure projects are perhaps not really based on genuine need, say soccer stadiums or expensive five-star hotels or whatever. So so that is one set of issues that you could end up having these so-called white elephant projects. Uh, your thoughts on that? And secondly, this ability that you were saying earlier about the ability to say no, that, you know, look, we don't have the money, we won't be able to afford it, we can't go on a spree of taking loans because there are now increasingly concerns over rising debts. And this goes back to our earlier point about gifts and reciprocity. So if you can't pay back now, you know, all of these concerns, what else can, can, what are we supposed to do in the future? And the debate, of course, as you know, is a bit polarized because even though there are fears of this wave of looming defaults, there are also some people who say that this kind of so-called the fears of Chinese predatory lending are exaggerated. So two issues here. What do you think about, firstly, projects that are perhaps not or should not be prioritized, such as stadiums? And secondly, your views on the, the rising debts of African countries to China? Absolutely. And so, uh, so come back to this, this project. So uh, on those projects first, in my view, in my understanding um, from what I've seen, the soccer stadium projects, um, the, um, you know, presidential palace or uh, the president's mansion projects, those projects tend to be Chinese grants, aid, and they are public relations pieces. They are public diplomacy pieces sort of show that the Chinese I think the, the question then is, there was a report out of William & Mary A-Data that showed that some of the Chinese projects tended to be, you know, maybe in a region that the president is from, especially in an election year. So, so the project wasn't exactly what was needed. It was something that was more political than economic or social. And, 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 and there was less of that with, with World Bank projects. And I think that's a problem. But in 2018, I think by, two, by the full CAC of 2018, the Chinese government itself had acknowledged that because in his speech uh, at the, the uh, Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, Xi Jinping had said that there will be no you know, political projects anymore, no, no prestige projects that they will begin to. So I think the Chinese themselves recognized that. Um, but th there was definitely this issue. I mean, one of the problems it wasn't simply that African countries were accumulating debt. I mean, almost every country is indebted. Some of them, you know, significantly more than African countries. For uh, for for people observing the debt, it was the pace at which the debt was growing is really really fast. And and you know, China is not a member of the Paris Club. In the Paris Club, as you know, your listeners might know, is this group of Western industrialized countries that had signed an agreement on debt sustainability in terms of how they lend to poor countries. And this is especially after what happened with HIPIC. And China wasn't a member of that. And in a lot of instances, the complaints were that the Chinese were not actually taking the sustainability of the debt that they were you know, extending to African countries. And then in China's you know, engagement and in this is competition, great power competition with the United States, the U.S. government and its allies began to repeat this line that Chinese lending was actually a debt trap diplomacy. 
And the idea behind that was that China was saddling its supposed partners with debt, intentionally hoping that those partners would not be able to afford to repay the debt and then strategic national flagship infrastructure would be taken over by the Chinese. Right, so um, one of what people always point to is is the port in Sri Lanka, Hambantota, that this is what the Chinese were, were were trying to do. I don't think there's there's been a ton of, of of research, and there's no evidence that you know China is intentionally trying to burden its partners with debt so that it can take over those countries' infrastructure. But I think um, now that you know, COVID-19 has sort of accelerated that debt crisis and brought it upon us long before it actually came up on its own. You know, that that's coming up in terms of, you know, when the G20 meets or the G7, the G20 meets to, to waive debt, almost 70% of the bilateral lending is from China alone. So we say G20, but most of the owners falls on China. And China hasn't been very fast in terms of that one, China doesn't want to set a president. And so all of the, the concerns that people raised when these Chinese loans were being extended, those concerns are now coming to, 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 the, to the fore. And so um, the, the, the problem was we're trying to avoid what, what happened before, right, where up to 60% of, of African countries and places like Ghana and Zambia, 60% of government resources were being used to just service debt which meant the government couldn't invest in, you know, in health and education and things as people needed. And that was the fear that, you know, continuing to take on these loans, whether from China or wherever, would create that, that, that uh, condition. But I don't want to talk about the risk of the loans without talking about what drives that, right? Everywhere else in the world, um, population is declining, except in Africa. And as those numbers grow, I mean, African cities, the people moving from, from rural areas to urban areas, but significant population growth in urban areas on their own. It means that governments have to spend more on social services. You have to educate these people. You have to provide health services for these people. You have to provide you know, electricity for these people living in these cities. And most governments are unable or do not have the resources. So what does a government do? Right? And so it's not as if, you know, governments are simply collecting loans willy-nilly and just doing whatever with the money. They're responding to very present needs, urgent needs among their own people. And if those needs are not met, I mean, part of the problems we're seeing, you know, is a significant number of people uh, moving across national borders, migration, mostly economic migrants, simply because of how difficult conditions are at home. I mean, those are push factors. Obviously, governments are set up so that they can provide security to people, but also to provide certain services to people. There's a social contract between people and government. And, in, and governments across Africa are hampered in their ability to hold up, their, hold up their end of the social contract. And so, you know, getting loans from China has helped governments to be able to do that. So it's, it's two ways here. You know, there's a risk to, to the loans, but also there's a risk to have a significant number of young people without jobs, without any services for them. It threatens the stability of the state itself. I think 
it would be a mistake, and I know it, it would be a mistake if we thought that policymakers in many of these African countries are unaware of the risks. In fact, most of the interactions I've had is that they are actually aware, but you know they don't see much of an alternative. And this is also your point, which I really like, is that, well, of course, you know, China is providing opportunities, providing capital, providing technological expertise, doing certain things that nobody else is doing. So one way would be, of course, to criticize and to say, you know, highlight all the problems. But the more interesting question that you asked a couple of months ago is precisely what I think is the most relevant one. What is the alternative? And so that brings me to the next set of issues. Why has the US, for example, been so reluctant to invest in African infrastructure? I've had numerous discussions with friends like Frank Fukuyama at Stanford, who've often been saying, you know, the US should be investing much more, but they haven't. And so the question is, what explains that? And it is not just the Trump administration. This also happened during President Obama's period. Why this kind of lack of interest in Africa? Why is this not more of a central theme in many of these world powers that typically tend to criticize China? Yeah, and I mean, this is this is a question I raised in my piece. You know, like, what is what? Where is the like for like replacement? You know, if if China were to stop all of its lending to Africa tomorrow, there is not a single country that's made any indication that it can fill that gap. So what are these countries supposed to do? And, and I think a part of it is that, you know, uh, Jean-Pierre Juncker, Juncker the, the previous uh, EU president, in his 2018 State of the European Union address, you know, he said that we have to begin to look at Africa differently. We've always perceived Africa through the lens of aid, development aid, and, and this has been shameful. So I think he himself recognized that. I think across Europe, that's also been recognized. The United States has benefited significantly from having a prosperous neighbor in Canada, right? Africa is Europe's neighbor. And like I said in my piece, until the Chinese, there's never been, it's just been a complete failure of imagination in terms of engagement with Africa. Because the Belt and Road Initiative is a transcontinental infrastructure plan. Even if it doesn't work, it is an incredible innovation in terms of thinking about development and economic growth, of connecting the economies of the poorest places in the world with some of the richest places in the world. Europe is as close to Africa as any, but there's never been a European plan for transcontinental in infrastructure. Europe seems just obsessed with migration. It seems like European development in Africa has been taken over now by the need for Europe to extend its borders to the Sahel and ensure that migrants do not come from Africa. So until the Chinese came with the Belt and Road Initiative that connects, it is a 70% of, um, of the world's population and, and 30 to 40% of the world's GDP in terms of all of the countries. Of course, China is doing a lot of heavy lifting there, but it's, it's really, really innovative. And of course, if it has been done by China, China will put itself at the center of that. So the, the question then is, if China is spending more money, is lending more money than all of the multilateral institutions combined, 
then there's a huge gap here. And, and the question I raise is, you know, between 2001 and 2018, the U.S. government, especially in the war on terror, in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, has spent about $6 trillion. $6 trillion, that's six, you know, the, the entire Belt and Road Initiative is going to be around $1 trillion. So it means six times over the United States alone could have had a global infrastructure project. But that's not how the U.S. thinks. That's not how the U.S. wants to, be, to do this. So it is not because the West doesn't have the capability to be able to do that. I guess the West doesn't simply attach the same value to you know, a more prosperous Africa than that the, the Chinese do. Why is that, Jude? I, so I, you know, I, I've, I've thought about this for a bit, and I think on the part of the U.S., the way I see it, and I could be wrong. So I'll give you an example. The U.S. government has done significant investment in infrastructure, too. And they do that through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, but there are lots of strings attached because the country has to pass 10 out of 20 governance indicators for about five years in a row to get a comeback. And the comeback is not a loan, it's a grant. You know, Ethiopia, Tanzania was the first they got over, I think, close to 800 million. Liberia got a comeback, it was 267 million. This, you don't have to repay. So basically, the US government gives you a huge grant to remove an a constraint to economic growth. In Liberia, it was power. So they, they, it's not as if the U.S. doesn't do that. But I'll just give you an example with Mali. So Mali had an MCC compact, and it was over $300 million, and it was building an airport. And not a single American company bid on that project. A Chinese company bid on it. This is money from the U.S. government through MCC. I think because the United States is a continent-sized country, U.S. businesses, firms, have never really had to fight overseas for, for work. There's enough work at home. I mean, this is a country in its response to COVID that, you know, was it $2 trillion that was passed, right? They're now negotiating a $1.5 trillion. So American companies have never really had to, you know, scrap like the Chinese companies have had to, or the European companies have had to. So the second thing also is that the U.S. is largely a service economy. There's, there's not as much, manufacturing isn't as big a portion of the U.S. economy. And so what Africa tends to export is largely unprocessed natural resource uh, goods and, and import finished products. And so in terms of exchange between the United States and Africa, there isn't really much. Most of what Africa exports to the U.S. is uh, used to be crude oil. And now with, with um, fracking here in the U.S., less and less of that is happening. And so because of that, there's not a significant amount of exchange between the U.S. and, and, and I think also the distance that the U.S. doesn't simply, so like in, in Asia, in, in Latin America, in America's neighborhood here in Latin America or parts of Asia, where the U.S. has these treaty obligations, these alliance commitments, it has no such commitment to Africa. And, 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 and Africa has largely been seen as this place where, you know, you just go and help people. It, it hasn't been seen as an economic partner. That's changing. I mean, the Trump administration with this prosper Africa seeks to double two-way trade between the continent and the U.S. And so that's a welcome move that, you know, 
encouraging American businesses outside of the extractive industries to invest in Africa. But I think it's just a failure of imagination about what a partnership with Africa can look like. And until the arrival of the Chinese, most of the West did not simply see Africa as an economic partner. Many of the things you raise, I think, you know, they are absolutely relevant. And I'm glad you mentioned the final aspect, that there's often this perception of Africa as or be associating Africa with everything bad, you know, it is about Ebola or is nothing good. And I and your current president has also uh, used a certain term to describe certain African countries. So there's this kind of perception in Africa, but also in 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 the U.S. Perhaps that it's a very sort of a negative relationship. There's nothing good that can come out of it, and perhaps companies also reluctant. They wonder about all these risks and political uncertainty. So perhaps some some sort of a rebranding is needed you know focusing on opportunities rather than challenges you mentioned uh, the us government's relatively new prosper africa program that is supposed to uh, increase apparently substantially a two-way trade and investment between the united states and and african countries how do you think that is working out so far have you have you seen any uh, significant movement in terms of trade and investment between the U.S. and Africa because of Prosper Africa? Not yet, not yet. I, I think so. The way I the way I see it is that, you know, the way the continent, like you said, the way the continent is perceived. So I, I should just say this quickly. I wanted to say at the beginning, is one, of the, one of the things I like and, and I'm grateful that the Center for Global Development has afforded me in this platform is, you know, you have an African in D.C., who is writing about Africa in the U.S., but from the perspective of Africans. And I think this is really, really important in terms of the discourse about the continent, because the large, the, the large, the perception about Africa tends to be negative. Uh, when President Obama hosted African countries and the U.S.-Africa partnership, there was a conference that was held. Jikaya Kikweti, the then president of Tanzania, was on a program, television program with Charlie Rose, and Charlie Rose was asking him, what is this issue with, how, how are you responding to Ebola? <laughs> he was like, I'm from Tanzania, man. Ebola is, in, you know, Ebola is in three countries in West Africa. Why am I even having a conversation about Ebola in Tanzania? You know, but there is this perception of Africa as a, as a monolithic single unit. And it's always negative. You know, is Ebola, is some sort of war, you know, and, you know, even within countries, you know, the northern Nigeria is different from Lagos, you know, uh, or then within regions. Nigeria is completely different from Ghana or from Cote d'Ivoire, but, but it is presented as this single unit and, 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 and almost overwhelmingly negative. So I think uh, one of the things that we're happy for, for Prosper Africa, is that for the first time, we, we see a process of the U.S. government reorganizing itself in terms of how it engages the continent. And it's not about, you know, war or, or, or disease outbreak. And it's mainly about trade and commerce. I think just simply changing the conversation has been a really, really big policy win for us who've always advocated better and more substantive engagement with the continent. In terms of what it actually does, I, I think even within the government, there's still sort of a learning process of what that means. I mean, one of the things that we've noticed is like, you know, that this idea to counter China, Africa can be engaged on its own merit without placing it in the context of a competition. 
right? And, and, and there are things that China does really, really well, especially the infrastructure piece, that there isn't, that the U.S. doesn't have that competence anymore. And even if the U.S. did it, it's not going to be, you know, cost competitive compared to the Chinese. So I think it's best that the U.S. does the thing that it does really well and let the Chinese do what they do well. So with Prosper Africa, we're yet to see. I think it's, it's still way too early to see if there's any benefit that's come from it. I think they're still trying to figure out how to go about doing it themselves. But I think just changing the conversation to one of trade and commerce and exchange that is outside those negative connotations of what happens in Africa is itself a policy win. Going back to something that we discussed initially, Jude, has to do with this focus that the West has traditionally had in its initiatives, in its interactions with many African countries, is to highlight good governance issues, human rights, anti-corruption, and the so-called shared values. Do you not think those are also important as you know we discuss this kind of competition between the U.S. And, and China and others, how important are these so-called shared values of democracy, of human rights, of good governance, of minority rights, etc.? So I, I, and I, I, and I'm glad that we're coming to this, you know, part that every actor in Africa, every external actor in Africa is driven by a set of values in terms of how the how that country identifies itself and what values it holds dear. So China is not coming to the continent value-free. China is coming with its own values. And one of the things that I mentioned in my post was that the Chinese model has limited applicability or desirability on the continent. One of the reasons why the Chinese model works the way it does is because you know, it's largely homogenous. You know, more than 90% of the Chinese population is Han Chinese, right? Whereas in most African countries, as small as, say, for example, Guinea-Bissau, you might have up to 15 different ethnic groups. Or in Liberia, where you have, you know, maybe 15 or 17 different ethnic groups, I think it's 15. So what happens then is that our form of government has to, it has to make room for minorities, because and, and, and almost every election is some sort of a grand bargain between regions or between ethnicities. And so because of that, a more representative form of government is more applicable, is more desirable. But that's not and that's not something that China is going to advocate because that's not the value that, you know, exercise Chinese engagement in Africa. And so for 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 the U.S., that has always preached itself as the leader of the free world, you know, has always seen itself as sort of a champion, as, you know, the guarantor of international security and a champion for democratic principles. One would think then that even if there were no direct economic gains between Africa and the U.S., because of these supposed shared values, it would make sense. And I think to a certain extent it does, especially in the kind of work that the U.S. does through USAID. But I think it's time to go beyond that. And, and, and to, to be honest, Dan, I, I'm hopeful because one, they, you know, OPEC has been folded into this new US Development Finance Corporation. Um, it has been given new mandates to do equity now and then not simply, you know, debt. 
It's also been given significantly more resources. And when it was being pushed, it was Africa that was being discussed as a place for them to be able to do business. So the hope is that there is going to be a change uh, in terms of the, the value of that. But if you look at Europe also, yesterday uh, uh, in uh, her speech on the uh, the state of the European Union, the new uh, president of the commission was very clear about a, a developing European bloc. You know, and to, I think it's today, or, no, it's on the 24th, there's going to be some sort of pact on migration. Uh, it's almost impossible to imagine a more substantive relationship between Europe and Africa that doesn't take migration into account. But the hope is that, you know, the West, especially with all of the tensions that came out of both the trade war and COVID-19, that the West will begin to, 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 you know, retool its engagement with Africa in more substantive ways and make resources available for, for, for that to happen. And, and for, you know, it's all speeches and hopes for now. So let's have this conversation in another three years and see. A final uh, set of issues, Jude, has to do with this increased focus on the self-interest. I see this being touted much more openly in Europe now than has been the case previously. So you have this growing number of bilateral summits between one country and the whole of Africa. So earlier this year, there was this UK-Africa summit. There's been um, the Russia-Africa summit following on all the China-Africa and India-Africa summit. You know, and I was talking to the new head of Norwegian NORAD, the aid agency, and he, even he was saying, you know, in Norway and Scandinavia, we should be talking much more about enlightened self-interest. And so my question really now has to do with how you see the future of these interactions between the EU and Africa or between, you know, one specific country and the rest of the continent, because there, there seems to be much more of a branding now. It is almost as if I find that many European countries are moving more closer to the Chinese model, you know, of, of praising their own views and saying, you look at what we've done and we've transformed things. Perhaps there's much more of a focus on the private sector, and all of these have implications because you may end up having Europeans focusing on infrastructure and perhaps neglecting health and education and all of these other relatively so-called invisible aspects. So, so what should the future of aid and investments look like, especially when you see so much focus on the national interest and branding? So I th thank you for bringing this up. And I, I remember doing a a piece, I, I think, I don't know if it was a piece, I think it was a long BBC interview and I called it sort of a conference, a summit of our own. Uh, you know, in a lot of instances, so it's China, Africa, it's Russia, Africa, it's UK, Africa, it's EU, Africa, it's the African side responding to an initiative from the other side, right? And, and, and so, and you're, when you're responding, you're already at a disadvantage. Right, because and and one of the things that I said was that most of those engagements, what they delivered to the African side, were transactional wins. We're going to invest two billion dollars. We're going to invest four billion dollars. And what is required of the Africans are policy gains. Open up your markets so that our products can come in. Okay, so and 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 
none of them wanted to make open. So they support agriculture. They, they, they provide subsidies to agriculture. I was listening yesterday that there's a region in China where the they, um, chrome that is mined in South Africa where it's processed into ferrochrome. And the only reason they can do that is because they get a huge subsidy in um, electricity from um, the, the government, from the local government. So there's significant subsidies that make um, even things in which Africa could be competitive, it makes us not competitive because of subsidies that those governments gave. So one of the ways to be able to counter this is the direction that the continent is moving in, and that's the Africa continental free trade area, where you're trying to combine and create a common market, so you create a single economic unit. What it does, I think, it increases Africa's leverage when you negotiate. And there is no way that Togo is going to negotiate on the same footing with China. It's just too small and too overwhelmed. Now, obviously, you know, one of the things I kept I, I, I keep drawing attention to is that even the two largest economies in the, on the continent are still pretty small. You know, Nigeria is now around 400 million. And South Africa is around 380 million or sometimes 400. Both of them, Nigeria has close to 200 million people. And its 400 billion economy is still smaller than the economy of the Washington, D.C. area. You know, South Africa, too, is still smaller. And those are the two giants on the continent. So it makes sense that if Africa is going to increase its leverage vis-a-vis -vis its partners, then it has to do so as a unit. So I'm, I'm very glad that the continent is moving in that direction. The second thing also is that, you know, I think it's 22 African countries that are landlocked. And 30% of all the landlocked countries in the world, or 22% of the continent's population live in landlocked countries. And, and it means that this, they're, they're very small. It's difficult to scale. It is when we are created in a single unit. Now, obviously, this is not going to be easy. It's going to be fits and starts. But if you look at the European project, beginning with Jean Monnet or beginning with the European Coal and Steel Corporation, what we see today of the EU is completely different from where it started years ago. So if the, the, as creating a single market or a common market in Africa is looking at the European project in terms of where it will be, then there, there, there's going to be a learning curve. It's going to take some time, but that's the direction you want to continue to go in because in this new world of nationalist leanings, of, of great power competition, size counts. And as it stands, 54 small, unique, fragmented pieces on the continent will not prosper, will not thrive in a world where size matters. And so I think if Africa is going to sort of shape the terms of engagement with its partners, then it will have to do so as a unit. It will have to leverage its size as a unit. Do you think there is trust among African countries to, to form this united bloc? I sometimes wonder whether, you know, whenever you have these high-level summits, I sometimes wonder how the voices of the smallest countries are reflected and whether the major economies like Kenya, you know, South Africa, Nigeria, drown out the voices of the, of the smaller economies. Yeah, you know, um, for this idea started, I think, in 1996 at a meeting in Lagos. And it only came to pass when, what is his name? Uh, the president of Rwanda 
Paul Kigali, yeah, he used his, you know, when he was chair of the African Union, because it's, it's a rotating thing, one year, he used his entire year to drive it and try to get it to that point. I think a lot of leaders on the continent also recognize um, that we are negotiating from a position of weakness and the way to be able to increase our strength is to act as a unit. So the problem, you, you, as you rightly say, is, you know, is Nigeria and South Africa, Nigeria was the last to ratify and Nigeria remains you know, a, a big problem because you know, since August of last year, Nigeria has closed its borders with its neighbors. I mean, we can't be talking about creating a single market and you close your border for a year, even at great cost to your people. So I, there, there is a significant amount of risk to the progress of this project if Nigeria and South Africa do not act in concert with the rest of the continent. But I think there is enough momentum for the project to go forward, you know, without them. Because again, you have to realize as powerful and as big as Nigeria is, 90% of Nigeria's export revenues come from oil and not for trade in goods and services, right? So Nigeria can afford to close its border and still continue to go forward. I think, you know, because the world is transitioning to a post-petroleum economy, Nigerian leadership itself, whether it wants to or not, will be forced to to go in the direction of a, a, a single market. But I agree with you that the most powerful countries on the continent have a disproportionate say in what direction it goes in. But I think the events will overcome that. And, and there is, a, it seems to me, there is a, a renewed commitment into something like that going forward. Jude Moy, it was a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me in, and hopefully uh, in the future you can have me again. I would love to. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.